My name is Karma. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Sadia. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast. Based in Toronto. This is the second part of our series of discussions titled Islam, Identities, Belonging, Phobias. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and to share our content with your friends. And also remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast. So I wanted to pick up on something that you guys were talking about a bit earlier about how leftists here tend to be very uncomfortable with talking about Islam in any sort of nuanced way and the reason why any nuanced discussion of Islamophobia or of Islam has to be shut down is because no then you're going to create room for Islamophobia Um, but then that's that sort of censorship actually gives rise to some of this alt-right and if even if it's not manifested as alt-right but just sort of resentment among students in you know university campuses or the broader public and then, you know, it gives rise, oh, there's a conspiracy, you know, the, the Muslims are taken over. And, and even if there isn't a conspiracy, there's just, you know, the leftists shut ourselves down and shut down other people because we're too afraid to have a discussion. Yeah, which in, in some ways, it's kind of betrays what it means to be a leftist, because back in the day, we used to be those proponents of free speech, et cetera, et cetera, open discussion. But it seems like the left today has shut itself in and stopped being critical about certain things. It's like we ourselves have adopted a certain strict dogmatic way of of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you'll find like in it's interesting because in a lot of these classes when we'd have these discussions, uh, people would like talk about it afterwards, right? And be like, yeah, you know, I, I do think that's kind of a good point or whatever. So it's like it's clearly people are thinking through these things. And just like you were saying, Sadia, like if you don't end up talking about them, yeah. then people... Actually, yeah, like it shuts people off the left and people will be like, well, if the left is not willing to talk about this, where else can I go mm-hmm. where people are willing to talk about this openly and honestly? And and they'll they'll find those places that maybe, um, you know, with with uh, agendas that we might not necessarily want to support, right? Or agendas mm-hmm. that yeah. are worrying, uh, generally speaking. And that's really concerning, right? Like if we don't want to be having that, uh, then we should be able to have these discussions openly. And... I, I mean, the, the weird thing is like you, you usually find this from people who, who, because of the current context of who's allowed to speak on what, mm-hmm. will feel like they don't have uh, the right to speak, but also feel like they have to say something to to show their allyship or to show how supportive they are of the cause. And so they all, they, and they end up just being in this, in this rut and they'll shut the conversation down mm-hmm. because that's the only, like given the, the, the dynamics of, the, of of what's allowed and what's not allowed yeah. on the left now, that's the only place you'll end up being right. able to do. You'll either shut down the conversation completely or go off if you feel like you're, uh, okay, you can speak on it right. um, in, a, in a just a, a really strange direction yeah. um, that's very defensive and uncritical. Yeah, I think this is a more general tendency of how we, um, how we discuss our credentials for who is able to speak on what topic. And so on the one hand, you know, leftists will be uncomfortable with talking to people like us who might be Muslims, but we're not the right kind of Muslims, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and so we're not authentic in some way. And so they want authentic Muslims to speak on Islam or speak, you know, or be invited to speak on panels or at rallies and such to represent Islam and to, you know, represent um, the threat of Islamophobia. But it's such a contrived sort of artificial construct. And I've been to rallies and panels like that where people are you know, invited to speak. Um, and you get this 
like weird dissonance where you know this person is either just being very very islamic and i went to an islam anti-islamophobia rally i think this was probably in 2015 when there were a series of um anti-muslim like attacks in in toronto and it's it started off with a call to prayer you know it started off with azan like the, mm-hmm. the muslim call to prayer and people were supposed to like stand there and somehow pray and i was just like what is going on but but that's the sort of conclusion to if you you know screen out any muslims that have like complicated views yeah and the will you it's just so strange because it's like okay you you screen out those muslims because they they can't really speak on the issue or you just end up being this like this problem that they don't know how to deal with mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. But then it's like this concept that like someone can't speak on an issue. I find this special, especially weird with Islam because you have some people that like maybe inadvertently end up essentializing race. And so we'll say like, okay, it is only if you are this particular race that you can speak on this issue. And that is, that's one thing. I don't, I think that's kind of, that's strange and essentializing obviously. But then you have this other, like with, when it comes to Islam, it's like you can have someone that's converted to Islam. So like what, we go back to this, like, what does it mean? Um, and then why then is it like that you can speak on an issue and someone else can't, right? So like someone who maybe is just interested in Islam and has done their research regardless of their background, like why is it that they cannot say, hey, I have this interesting mm-hmm. uh, this interesting take on, on this particular issue? That's just completely kind of shut down. And so then you end up, like you were saying, Sadia, like you end up with a very particular kind of person standing there that otherwise a progressive might not agree with on mm-hmm. many various issues, right? That you might not even like feel comfortable having them lead anything particularly progressive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it actually, I would I would claim that it emboldens Islamophobia, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know? Because if you have people like just in, in this one particular, like, like Omer was saying previously in our previous episode, um, that if we let the Islamists kind of completely take the the credential of of Muslim and like that identity, and then that's the only thing that is portrayed as Muslim, then I would kind of understand if someone is skeptical mm-hmm. of Islam then at right. that point, right? Yeah, because, you know, it, it's some, it is weird. Again, I guess this ties into our earlier conversation about, you know, why leftists here can't deal with actually existing Muslims, right? They, they want a pre-packaged particular kind of Muslim uh, with a particular range of views. Um, and so it, there is a certain kind of essentialism and condescension mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, no, we are white leftists. We can have a range of political views and complexities, but like these people, they only, they're Muslims and therefore their politics and their entire worldview begins and ends with Islam. Thus, like reaffirming the sort of like homogenous like, um, narrative of what, what Muslims are that western media or media in general likes to push yeah yeah and like maybe this is uh you know i mean we've been broadening out the discussion generally but then this is like we've had i've had conversations with other leftists about universalism when it comes to this (laughs) (laughs) and that's always like uh weirdly contentious but the concept of solidarity and and uh and universalism at that point completely also goes out Mm -hmm. the window Mm -hmm. um which i guess is kind of like on par with uh, a lot of things on the left nowadays um but but that's it. and this is where the contradiction sets in is if you are a Muslim that's in the diaspora mm-hmm. that does believe in universalism, um, you somehow just don't matter anymore. Even though you're supposed to be the the, the subject matter here that really that is of concern, um, and it's it's doubly strange because a lot of people and you know this is not just white people who are to blame here. There's a lot of people in the diaspora the, itself that 
you know, will claim to really have this like connection to their ancestors and to their, their place of birth in a strange way, um, regardless of like whether they do actually have any genuine connection. It doesn't really matter, but they, there's this claim, right? And it, the strange thing is, is if, if you look at just recent history, like we were talking about the Pan-Arabist movement, for example, that was a universalist movement in many ways, yeah. right? So here you are like bashing universalism, claiming to cherish the ancestors who were universalists, many of them. Um, and so it's just like ahistoric and strange. Yeah, that's also what's what's really interesting because like how far do you want to go back of what your ancestors are, right? Right. Because let's say about 1400 years ago, no one was Muslim. Mm-hmm. And what does that leave us? So do we have to go back to other forms of thinking, other, for, other cultural objects? Because I feel like the, the word ancestor has really been abused. Um, it, it's like that type of thinking of like returning to a golden age kind of mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. which it presents as a historical model. And that's wrong to yeah. organize around and orient yourself around because you're going to literally get nowhere. And there is something like, you know, about this sort of revisionist perspective of Islam that uh, we see. And I've noticed this more in the diaspora than anywhere else that, well, you know, our countries back home. Because, you know, as we were saying, Muslims are from all sorts of cultures, all sorts of contexts. Well, actually, they sort of defile Islam by putting in too much culture into that. And so what we need to do here is to go back to, as you were saying, Mahmoud, like a pure Islam. And so you see that here where like the irony is that the diaspora is the least connected to any sort of organic Islamic history or like lived Islam. But... Precisely because of that, they feel like they need to so conjure up this kind of Muslim identity, which does then like sort of subsume their entire identity. Mm-hmm. So then like so Islam is going to explain everything about them, um, their politics, their worldview, how where they send their kids to school, what clubs they join at school, like the, the Muslim Student Associations, the MSAs are some of the largest, I think the largest by membership um, student groups on campus in like the GTA. And so everything about me is going to be exhausted by Islam. And that makes me authentically Muslim, like, you know, the, the way Islam was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So like completely alienating who you are as a being to this abstract notion or this uh, this constructed abstract notion of what Islam is. That's not connected to anything, even yeah. though people claim that it is connected to something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's really, it is really, really strange. And it's like, like what my experience of this was like when I first moved here was the first time that like I actively felt uh, kind of like watched by like other Muslims and being called like a bad Muslim. Mm. Like it was strange to me that in a place like like Jordan, I had never really experienced this. If someone thought you were a bad Muslim, like for whatever reason, it wouldn't, no one felt like it was their place to come tell you that. And this was something like I just generally, like this is my, my, was my, even though it was taught to us in school, right? There was like definitely, um, like an aspect to it that was uh, like trying to be institutionalized in some way. But there was this general aspect, especially because you were trying to deal, like you were trying to coexist with Christians and like other people where it was like religion is like a personal thing, right? Like you, that you don't like that it's dangerous Mm -hmm. when it becomes politicized. Mm -hmm. And there was a a discussion when the Muslim brotherhood started really gaining traction uh, all over the Arab world, for example, there was a huge discussion uh, among people in the Arab world as to like whether that was a good or a bad thing. Right. right, like, is this dangerous? Is like, is, like, political Islam a dangerous thing? Right. And so, yeah, it was really strange to come here all of a sudden and then be like, oh, like, dang, like, you know, people feel like they can police how you act. 
No, I ha- I used to be a settlement counselor, so um, you know, helping newcomers figure out life here, and and so I had gone to a mosque to do some outreach, like hand out flyers of services, and the imam there was like, sister, you can't help others until you help yourself, and he basically <laughs> meant that I wasn't working a job, and so you know, I was sort of like, it's so condescending. <laughs> yeah, wow. But it's that kind of judgment, right? It's like, well, you know, you're disqualified from doing anything for Muslims because you're clearly not a Muslim uh, yourself. Yeah, you're what astray. You've gone astray, right? So that's what also I felt like. There's this like that reminded me of a Facebook page. It's called like Haram memes for like Jannah teens or something like that. Jannah-minded teens, which is hell. Yeah. Which it reminds me of like there's a certain like like the youth in in Islam in in Islamic diaspora today are interesting because like they like to meme themselves like there's always that one type of Muslim who's like does everything else but doesn't eat pork right. that would constitute what I am but like <laughs> <laughs> but um it's 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 almost like there's this weird self awareness to mm-hmm. it yeah that is really interesting actually in, that you bring up like, the humor in the, the diasporic communities as well because on the one hand you have these like very sort of dogmatic Muslims mm-hmm. who are like going around judging other people and talking down to them. And on the other hand, there's like the rest of the Muslim community, which I guess is probably struggling, like, and I guess also struggling with their identity of like, where do they fit in in Islam? And, and so this sort of negotiations about like um, dietary restrictions, because for a lot of, I think at least for my family, when they, when we first came here, one of the first sort of struggles was that, oh, so much food here is haram or like, you know, not, not permissible. Haram. And so we would be reading ingredients very <laughs> and WhatsApp groups and such would be like trying to make lists of what you're allowed to eat or not. That reminded me uh, when I was a kid, I did not understand the fuss about gelatin. <laughs> Right. And because like I grew up eating whatever whatever I want that's not pork, right? I thought that for me that was Islam, right? When I was a kid, right? Um and so like like there, like it goes back to what you're what, what like both of you were saying in terms of like being policed mm-hmm. while you're in the diaspora. I was like police for eating like a gummy bear. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, whoa. That was a big deal. Yeah, I was like, it's a big deal. I bought some gummy bears yeah. at Chopper's Dark Ride at like lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I remember one day when I was like, what, like five or six. And like this kid told me I was going to hell because I'm eating a gummy bear. I was like, whoa, this, this yeah. is crazy. I've been to the mosque. Like typically women don't go to the mosque back home. Okay. I mean, that's its own conversation, but I never cared. I was like, I'm thankful I don't have to do this. Um, so th- typically that's not a thing. Here, I guess, because of, of what we're talking about is like people want to connect to their roots. Like everyone will go to the mosque, uh, including women, even though like they're obviously shoved to the back and everything. And like, so I went once with a group of friends in high school. At the talk that was happening at this particular prayer, like basically like I was told, okay, so you will burn for every hair that is showing on your head oh my in Jahannam, okay? This was pretty intense. <laughs> like yo all right let's just calm down for a second next level psychological horror yeah (laughs) and it's like you know a lot of people there don't wear the hijab no one seemed to really care so it's obviously like also like there are these like kind of horrifying moments that don't translate into everyone's people like obviously everyday lives no one's living this intensely but it it was just really actively strange for me Mm. that like i experienced so much more of that in canada than i did (laughs) in jordan yeah (laughs) um it's also like you know the controversies of uh, some Muslim parents not wanting their kids to take music class, for example. <laughs> I mean, like, or this sex is, ed, especially or, right, or sex yeah. ed. That's that's been a big one, and to to a certain degree, like I I can understand having like wanting to consult people, so there's no political backlash, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
especially with something like sex, the sex ed curriculum, like uh, a general like kind of consultation and like including people in the process makes some sense. Like it, it I, I think that makes sense. Um, but at the same time, it's like, there's a reason why something like social services, for example, exists, right? Generally, mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about Muslims now, but in general, we we don't think, obviously, right? No one thinks that like a parent can do just anything they want with their child. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and you know, you should, obvi- like a parent will have obviously certain a certain say as to how their kid will grow up. Um, but when it comes to something like music class, for example, like I wonder, like, is it, should we just be like, yeah, fine. Yeah, your kid doesn't get to be introduced to music because of a particular belief, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what could we generally come to a consensus as to like, what is good for kids to learn in school or whatever, you know, yeah. is music kind of like, would it be a bit of a, of a tragedy for the kid to not ever have, like get the experience of music, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's a small thing, but the, the point is that they should be discussed, right? Like that there should be space to discuss and that progressive should be making the space for nuanced discussion yeah. rather than shutting, shutting these conversations yeah. down. Um, because that's not doing anyone any favors, including the parents that, you know, might like just be like, well, this is what I've been like, what I've t- been taught forever, right? And maybe a conversation about this could potentially change my mind. Yeah. I mean, like, it just it's doing no one any favors, right? Yeah, because I remember when um, I was part of a community organizing project in Thorncliffe, and this, um, which is a majority Muslim community in Toronto and the East End, um, when the sex ed curriculum came through, a lot of the Muslim parents were terrified. And that school, actually, the elementary school in Thorncliffe, which happens to be the largest by sort of enrollment in North America, they decided, the parents decided that they're going to keep their kids out of school as a strike against the sex ed curriculum being implemented. And so for a while, um, for the first like, couple of months in that fall semester, the school was mostly empty because the kids were being you know, taken, kept, kept out. And um, what I've learned from a lot of the moms there was that there was a peer pressure, right? That it wasn't that they were each able to individually make a decision about what to do with their kids. Um, that there was, you know, this feeling that, okay, well, we are all together. Like there is this policing as you, you guys were saying. And so you can't just be like, okay, well, it's my kid. I'm going to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though I tried to go through the curriculum with them to be like, well, this is what the actual document says, is they're not going to make the kids kiss each other or touch each other inappropriately. That's not what the sex ed curriculum is about. But even so, it was just like, there was just, there's a lot of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And so from what I'm seeing, actually in the last, since the sex ed curriculum, I think it's just gotten accelerated. A lot of the Muslim community, at least the South Asian Muslim community, increasingly has been putting kids in Islamic schools. Um, yeah instead of the public school. I don't know if you guys are seeing something similar in the Arab community. Yeah, that's definitely a trend. Yeah. Uh, I think among Arabs as well, just among Muslims in the suburbs especially. Yeah, it's also just kind of strange to me because I I think, like, it's just weird to think of, like, going back to kind of, like, segregated schooling in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's not obviously being done in this, like, top-down way. But that's essentially, like, the conclusion, right? Is, like, you, the because of, like, the Muslim parents, like, and and their convictions, I suppose, they want to segregate their kids from the rest of society, mm-hmm. um, which will in turn kind of create this like like degrees of separation, yeah. right? Um, and like it's like yeah, I mean, you look at Toronto for example, and like people will understand like what inshallah means or wallah or like things like that, right? And these are like just it, it beca- they become sort of culturally intertwined mm-hmm. in this like very organic way, mm-hmm. um, which I think I 
like that. I don't mm-hmm. think of that as a bad thing at all. Like it's like, yeah, these things are going to happen. Um, whereas like the the kind of Islamophobic tension that rises will rise from thinking actually of like everyone as this othered, mm-hmm. like d- yeah. weird and like str- like they're doing weird shit in those schools. Who right. knows what's going on over there? You yeah, know? and um, because like. If we segregate people into like different schools, we're kind of giving the right more fuel to uh, reaffirm their Islamic pho- Islamic phobic, phobic worldview. Mm-hmm. And leftists will be like, well, you know, uh, the government funds Catholic schools, and so if we fund that, then uh, then who's to say that Muslims don't have a right to fund their own schools, right? So I mean, yeah. I think that's usually how leftists deal with this is by just pointing to other things um, instead of like tackling the issue itself. And I think we do that like very often with terrorism uh, is that, you know, if we bring up like Islamic terrorism, they'd be like, oh, but, you know, statistically uh, white supremacists are much more likely to uh, be terrorists. Uh, and and sure, like numerically that's that, but that doesn't get rid of yeah. Islamic terrorism either. Like, and if only the right is gonna talk about it, then basically that means that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who want to talk about that that will then drift to the right or at least have uh, their attention. Or like the voices on the left that do talk about it get like shunned out or overshadowed by by the generic um, identity politic worldview where like if you're critical of the, or if you don't focus on like, let's say white terrorists, you're Islamophobic. Yeah, and it's also like, there's a there's some common thread here, right? Like that we can't ignore. They're not like st- totally separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe people get there f- for like different reasons, but like the alienated individual that ends up like shooting up a school or something. Um, I mean, you know, like whether they're Muslim or whether they're white or whatever. There's a common there's a commonality here too that we should be talking about instead of like being like no we're only going to condemn the white ones we're going to try to like protect or be defensive when it's a Muslim so that yeah. all the Muslims don't get shot like you know yeah. shunned and like I understand like the reactions there like have come from a series of things that have happened mm-hmm. uh, that I kind of understand but I think the the best way probably to go about moving forward with these discussions is to kind of be like, okay, like why are these things happening? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, we shouldn't really demonize anyone here. Um, it's like, there are th- reasons this is happening. This is a phenomenon. So it's not an, an individualistic issue. It is a, a cl- well, clearly a cultural both, systemic like, I mean, issue. whether it's a white supremacist mass shooter or a Muslim one, they're both products of the same society. Yeah. yeah. yeah and exactly. so it's like, okay, well, there, there is, as you're saying, that there's a common root, there's a common problem which produces these different shades of mass violence yeah i and like this this also points to a trend that that exists today where we kind of ignore the historical material conditions in which produces such uh, events like islamic terrorism or uh, a school shooter and we we just adopt this sort of um this postmodern model of like privilege checking because like just also when we're talking about diaspora just imagine like those quote-unquote progressive diaspora people going back to their homeland and telling random people to check their privilege and how that would work. <laughs> also, like, it, it, I know this is somewhat unrelated, but it also reminds me of, like, anti-war protests that happen in, let's say, like, Dundas Square, for instance, that at the, like, yes, it's, it's like, we have a symbolic gesture against anti-imperialism and anti-imperial, like, imperialism it results in, like, it's it's like the fundamental tool in which perpetuates like terrorism like islamic terrorism but we've ever since the fall of the anti-war movement we've 
kind of been stumbling on on ways to develop like an adequate anti-imperialist movement. I was going to say, actually, that uh, one of the things that's interesting in, when we were talking earlier about post 9-11 is that it wasn't just that ordinary Muslims became sort of afraid of expressing their Muslim identity. It was actually several groups of leftists and left uh, movements really kind of got destroyed post 9-11. So whether it was the anti-war yeah. movement, the anti-globalization stuff, even like labor and, and general strike stuff. It, it, it's also because like it goes back to that. I know this is mainly an American issue, but like anything that the, the left did in America was perceived as anti-American and being anti-American in like at least in the Fox News narrative was pushed as being with Islamic terrorism, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Which is also like paints a weird stigma during the but during the post 9-11 era during the Bush years as like if you're like anti-war, you're for terrorism almost. Right. It's interesting, yeah, how this like anti-American or even like if you're anti-traditional, like if you're like, you know, not a conservative, essentially, um, how that in recent years has been like, well, then you must be with the Islamist. Mm -hmm. It's a really strange thing. Or a snowflake. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that too. But like I had a, so like I had an English teacher in, in high school who like identified as a conservative Christian, right? So he would talk about himself. He was, he was a very popular teacher mm. um, who wasn't very liked by the other uh, sort of more, I guess, progressive quote unquote teachers because he was very honest about being a conservative and like, you know, having very traditional values and like, you know, being a Catholic, that kind of thing. Um, and I would always kind of like challenge him in class or like disagree with him. I liked himself as a teacher, but um, and, you know, it, it was interesting because on the last day of school, when I was like, I'm going to York, uh, what he said, he was like, oh, you, you will find yourself at home there. Be you know, the, all the Islamists and you know, that kind of thing, they, they're, you know, the Muslims there are thriving, you, you know, the, all the, the Muslim progressive community. Like he associates, you know, being a progressive with, mm -hmm. with Islam, right. which is really funny. Because like you were saying, Sadia, like the conservatism within Islam has, there's been a rising, like, so it's, it's just a really strange yeah. Um, yeah. thing. You know what's interesting that never happened is like you had the, con you have conservative Muslims, like you have conservative Islam and conservative Christianity. They haven't really joined sides. It's except like, for on the sex side. Yes, stuff. except yeah. that and, and issues regarding like LGBT stuff, right? Yeah. But generally speaking, they're, they're they like demonize each other. I mean, that's it's kind of interesting because I guess we don't have that much of an organized alt-right in Ontario the same way that in the States they do. But like the Conservative Party in Ontario, I think in the last like couple of elections, they've been trying to court Muslims as much as they've been trying to court like, uh, you know, conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. And so there is this like interesting so conservative multiculturalism that's emerged mm -hmm. uh where where increasingly yeah they, they are like there's family value stuff right and so so yeah i guess like you know multiculturalism can be can be framed all sorts <laughs> of ways thanks for tuning into our second part of our series on islam the next episode in the series we published on Monday, January 20th. Uh, so make sure to tune into that one as well. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>